I read the readings this week and I thought, you know, in the Green Sunday, sometimes you get these readings and you think to yourself, oh, well, what now? Uh, we have a reading from Hosea, one of the minor prophets that I just felt I had to preach on because it starts out with, good night, nurse, what kind of an introduction? And um, the gospel, which is Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. So I thought I'd say some things to you about the Lord's Prayer generally, maybe a few general comments uh, about prayer and the value and utility of the Lord's Prayer in our ordinary life of prayer. Some historical things about the prayer and the versions because it's important to know there's more than one version of the Lord's Prayer in English. And uh, also to remind ourselves that the Lord's Prayer as we receive it from the biblical text was in Greek and not English, and that sort of changes the way we understand things also. So let's start with Hosea. All, both of these readings, I think, it's a, are perfect Green Sunday themes because they have something to do with perseverance and something to do with how we understand faithfulness and steadfastness because I'm going to give you an interpretation of Hosea, which is now a view among a lot of uh, Hebrew Bible scholars about what this uh, is about, both personally for Hosea and corporately for the people of, North, of the Northern Kingdom uh, in Israel. So Hosea was exercising his prophetic ministry about 750 CE, it's around the time of Elisha and Elijah. And so we have the Baals and Jezebel and a whole lot of that stuff going on. And he believes that the northern kingdom of Israel is in hot water because of the uh, lack of faithfulness of the people of the northern kingdom in following these fertility gods and not paying attention to the God of the covenant, <coughs> Yahweh. But here's the thing. The passage opens with this. Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. My grandmother would say, oh dear, I wish you wouldn't say that. <laughs> right? What in the world is he talking about? I don't know because he marries somebody named Gomer. And he has three children. Uh, and he get all, gives them all names that are like Isaiah's kids. You know? Hi, this is my oldest boy. A remnant shall remain. This is my young son, not my people. Hosea, this is my daughter not to be pitied. <laughs> There's an introduction. It was apparently something very common then for the prophets. Hosea is a minor prophet. Remember what we said, a major prophet big book. has a big book, and a minor prophet has a, a little, little book. book. So it doesn't mean what the minor prophets say are unimportant or minor necessarily. It means that they don't say it in a long, long thing, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, which are long books. Jeremiah is the longest book of the Hebrew Bible. So they're 
going on and on and on. But Hosea is saying, here I'm upset and these are the reasons. Now here's the interpretation. I looked, I looked, prepared this sermon this week and I looked up several commentaries. A lot of contemporary scholarship is focusing on Hosea's prophetic ministry as flowing out of him coming to terms with his troubled marriage. So his perseverance and steadfastness with regard to uh, putting things right with Gomer she must have a checkered past, or at least he thinks so. And he has these children, and he comes to realize now that somehow through these processes, he experiences an enormous amount of faithfulness, and he draws the connection by looking around him in contemporary life in, northern, in the Northern Kingdom, and he sees that many people may be afflicted about this way corporately. So faithfulness is an important thing, and how do you and I go from the corporate to the personal? Because it's always easy to believe that when we read in the Bible about the great figures of the Bible, that they're always focused on the great issues that are in front of them and their personal lives in some way are subordinate to this. And all of us know in reality that what's going on in our personal life has something to do at least with what goes on in our public life. And I think, I think that Hosea learned something about how to persevere. And the funny thing is that he seems to be very changeable because we have literally, in most of this reading, <coughs> marched from one bad energy thing to the next, except at the end. And at the end, he says, yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So he, he changes just like this. Now, never mind all of the editing of the text and everything. The idea, of course, is that in the midst of all that perseverance, maybe some benefit uh, attaches. And in the historical record, and certainly in what he's talking about historically in the Northern Kingdom, uh, that is so. And people can begin to think, you know, uh, my perseverance and steadfastness uh, pays off. When, you come, when it comes right down to it, most of us realize that as we live our lives and seek to be faithful to our voc many vocations, both personally and corporately, it's the ability to persevere to have the internal self-regulation, to build the stamina necessary to face the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. How do we do that? So when we get to the Lord's Prayer, we're gonna have a, a petition uh, to ask God to help us with this whole idea of persevering. So think of Hosea not as some kind of crackpot pr prophet, but as somebody who may have learned some things about his own personal struggles through this process. The Lord's Prayer is given to us in the New Testament in two locations, in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. And today we read Luke's version, which is the least known, really, because it appears that very early on in the church's life, the Matthean 
how do you like that? The Mathean version is the one that became used in, or a form of it in the liturgy, which is where we pray this prayer in, in public terms most of the time. But in English, we've had a number of versions of this prayer coming out of our own <coughs> traditions. The Anglican tradition uh, has uh, three versions, or, or the English-speaking world has three versions. The first one is from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And it is uh, the same as the next one I'm going to mention, except it's Our Father, which art in heaven, and so, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, that's the 1662 prayer book, the, the still official prayer book of the Church of England. And then in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer and subsequent revisions in England and in this country uh, and in the Roman Catholic Church from the 16th century, the English version of the Lord's Prayer that we use is the prayer that they use without the uh, doxology. So it ends, as the biblical text does, with deliver us from evil. Some Lutherans use that prayer. They're strict uh, biblically yeah, in that regard. But there's no doxology. So it ends with sed libra nos in Latin, deliver us from evil. Most Roman Catholics still said the Lord's Prayer in Latin, up until the Second Vatican Council, but the English version in, Great, in England uh, was the same one as the one that we use in 1928. I'm going to read you something uh, in a minute. But, um, you know, I'll tell you, this business about Latin. In 1975, I was at, in St. Peter's Basilica on Epiphany when Pope Paul VI was the Pope. And he was presiding at the liturgy for Epiphany. There were 20,000 people in that church. There were television cameras up on scaffolds that were, you know, video, videoing it. All of this stuff was going on. The liturgy was in Latin, the new Latin rite, the Paul VI Latin rite, when he, all the stuff is still in Latin, translated into the other languages. So he was uh, celebrating the Eucharist in Latin. And when it came time for everybody to say the Lord's Prayer, 20,000 people said that prayer together from every country imaginable in that language. It was a powerful experience. And, you know, people from Vietnam, from all the African countries, from uh, all the European countries, from the United States, said that prayer in Latin by heart it was quite a, quite a thing. The Pater Noster, the Our Father. So in the English church, we sometimes call it the Our Father in English, which is the Pater Noster, right? Right next to St. Paul's Cathedral in London is Pater Noster Square. You know? So the Our Father was an, is an important thing. So in the 16th century, a decision was made. We have that version, and then there's a version in our present prayer book, and in the English, what's the name of it? I'll give you the technical thing. Ecumenical English Language Consultation. That's the prayer in Rite 2 that is the modern translation of the Lord's Prayer. 
We used to use that here, but I've gone back to the regular Lord's Prayer because I think that, uh, m although nowadays you just can't count on this, but for most people, that's the version of the Lord's Prayer they know if they know any. So people who are also in the recovery movement, they say the Lord's Prayer at the end of their meetings, and that's the version they say. So if someone comes to church and they want to say the Lord's Prayer, I figure it's best to say the Lord's Prayer version that is probably the most accessible at this point. The newer version is a better translation from the Greek text. It's more accurate. So things about save us from the time of trial um, is, is what it says in the original more easily than lead us not into temptation. But just so you know about that. In the 15th century, or 16th century, there was a Bible translator by the name of William Tyndall. And he translated a Bible before the King James Bible. He was kind of, uh, he must have been terrible dinner company and not much fun at all. But he got over to Europe and he did all these translations. He was finally garroted in Antwerp because he had these Protestant views. Quite, quite an interesting person, actually. But uh, Henry VIII decided that they needed to have an English version of the frequently said prayers in the Latin liturgy <coughs> that was uniform, that everybody knew and weren't saying all these different kinds. So a uh, edict came out in 1541 that said, his grace, perceiving now the great diversity of the translations of the Paternoster, etc., hath willed them all to be taken up. And instead of them hath caused an uniform translation of the said Paternoster, Ave, Creed, etc., to be set forth, willing all his loving subjects to learn and use the same, and straightly commanding all parsons, vicars, and curates to read and teach the same to their parishioners. And as the result of this, even though there was a Roman Catholic English translation called the Douay Reeves Version in 1581, and then in 1611 we had the King James Bible, this version of the Lord's Prayer that we say in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer is the one everybody in England said, whether you were a Roman Catholic, a dissenter, a member of the Church of England, or whatever it was. By the way, a dissenter, you know, Congregationalist, Presbyterian, whatever it is, doesn't matter. It's where we get the term nonconformist. That's where it comes from. So, the Lord's Prayer in that sense is an important thing, and maybe the default prayer that I hope most of us say when we just can't think of anything else. And we certainly say it at the liturgy. We have read Luke's version today, and I thought I'd just go through some of the things and explain them, and maybe it'll generate some conversation at the question and answer period. Um, the opening of the prayer, Father, hallowed be your name. This is the modern translation from the NRSV. That is a testimony that has always been noticed by those who read the biblical text of the intimacy that exists between Jesus and God. And so the word that he would have used for father was Abba, which is the word that we use for daddy. So it must have been startling that the Savior 
presumed to have this kind of an intimate relationship with God. And so, by extension, this is not the prayer he prays. It's the prayer he taught us to pray. And so he is assuming that you and I, too, share in this intimacy. And so the opening of the prayer suggests that that might be the case. Give us this day our daily bread. I forgot here. Um, your kingdom come. That's the prayer that says the values that I talk about in sermons and that Christian people yearn for about uh, uh, our relational life being one in which lo the law of love is the operative principle where we take one another seriously and really believe that each of us is made in the image and likeness of God that this is both a present affirmation and a future hope that that is going to be so in the world and that you and I are going to be instruments of that uh, bringing that reality to be uh, make it present. Give us each day our daily bread. People who've written a lot about this, you and I pray that prayer I do to get the needs that we have met, the ordinary commonplace things on a daily basis. It, has, it had another meaning when Jesus used it in addition to that, which was to give us the supply of the things that we need as the age is transformed by the values of the kingdom of God but that you and I pray for, for this. Saint Jerome, when he translated his Latin version, in uh, Matthew's version, he changes this uh, daily bread to something called super substantialonum or something, but keeps in Luke quotidianum. Every day, our daily bread. So it's the prayer for that future possibility. Uh, forgive us our sins. He doesn't mean we hope in relationally on a regular basis we're able to practice forgiveness, but in this case he means on the day of judgment that your sins are forgiven. And here is the line I get the most questions about. For we ourselves forgive everyone <coughs> indebted to us. Our forgiveness for others does not earn God's forgiveness for us, but is the condition of our continuance in forgiveness. So indebtedness, again, it's the language's problem. What can really be meant here is, is that we are being forgiven for the missed opportunities. You know, you hear preachers talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. So this may be what we're talking about in this particular context. Uh, and in other places in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus speaks parables that have something to do with the failure to uh, practice this kind of forgiveness. And do not bring us to the time of trial. I heard an interview with Dean Rusk about 25 years ago when he was being interviewed about the Vietnam War. And at one point, he said, he'd gone, he said, I went back to Texas and I saw my people down in Deaf Smith County. And they looked at me and they said, Dean, if you can't see your way out of this thing, then you ought to chuck it. <laughs> 
Have you ever felt like chucking it? You know, you're just going to chuck it. Well, this is a prayer against that. It's a prayer to be given the internal strength, the self-regulation, and the perseverance not <coughs> to chuck it. So all of us are tempted to chuck it frequently. And we pray and ask that we be given the strength not to do that. Now the final part of this prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power. Most Protestants uh, say the doxology. In the ancient Near East, it was presumed that a doxology would be said in Jewish prayer. And it wasn't written down because it just was what was added. And in early manuscripts of Matthew and of, of Luke, we have a, a huge number of different doxologies. So we have concluded that put the concluding doxology in because we think it will constitute an ordinary and commonplace part of the prayer. So the question might be, what is the role of the Lord's Prayer? And I view the Lord's Prayer as sort of my default prayer. Some people say, you know, you just, it, it's said so much that um, it becomes meaningless. And I'm not sure that that's true at all. If somebody calls St. Luke's and Pam tells me or they talk to me directly and they say, um, my sister is going into the hospital to have a test for breast cancer. Would you pr pray for her? Her name is Dara. My practice is sometime during the day before I leave, I go into the church to one of the uh, shrines in the church and I light a candle and say their name and say the Lord's Prayer. So I have, in, a, in minimum <coughs> terms, fulfilled uh, a formal responsibility to hold them close to my heart and up to God in prayer. And that is a thing that I recommend to everyone. It didn't originate with me as some good idea. I learned it from a monk of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, who I love dearly, Father David Clayton, who told me that that was a thing that I ought to do, and he was right. It's a very, very good practice. I've mentioned this to you before. I, when I first came here, somebody came to see me and said I was standing on the corner of Main Street and University about ready to cross to the uh, Los Gatos Coffee Roasting Company. And as I stepped off the sidewalk onto the, into the crosswalk when it said walk, I had this absolute urge to say the Lord's Prayer to myself. And I'm wondering, Father Brewer, if I'm becoming a religious fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> and what they were describing is an impulse that is called in the spiritual life, in the, in the ancient tradition of, of Western Christianity, habitual recollection. So that sometime through the day, you do something like that to remind yourself of who you are. So this week, um, don't worry about saying the Lord's Prayer too much. See if you can fold it into uh, your thoughts, even when you're doing 20 minutes of nothing. You know, maybe you could begin that with the Lord's Prayer. 
and end the 20 minutes of nothing with the Lord's Prayer. Might be a good plan to do that. Um, this prayer has great utility, and see how you can use it this week. Amen. <laughs>